All right, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This morning, we're going to just look at three verses. I'd hope to look at more, but these were like swallowing a concentrated pill. So I didn't think more than these three verses was doable. And certainly very, very important to us. Let's read these verses starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for clear, succinct words that bring facts into our lives. Lord, there are facts here we want to discover today. Uh, Lord, there's a tone here as well that you inspired in the Apostle Paul to write. A tone of anticipation. Lord, would you open our hearts to hear that tone. Your word anticipates something in our lives. Lord, would you give us the grace to anticipate it as well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, question. And this is, I've named the, the title of the message after a question here. Uh, what do you expect or what kind of expectations do you have for yourself? Right, it's kind of easy to ask the question, you know, what do you expect? That, that a lot of times our knee-jerk response to, to that would be, what do you expect of life? What do you expect of others? What do you expect in a situation? You know, we, we have a lot of expectations for other people, don't we? All right, my question really is, what do you expect of yourself? It's an interesting question. It can be an uncomfortable question. It can also be a very encouraging question as well. Because if you have expectations, you have them for a reason. I don't know how many of you guys are NBA fans and, you know, the NBA playoffs have started. My boys and I will spend some time in the coming weeks watching a lot of NBA playoff games. Um, I'm pretty much expecting that the Golden State Warriors are going to be in the finals. I'm just pretty much expecting that. And and there's a reason why I'm expecting that. Uh, They're overly talented, well-coached, disciplined team, right? There's a reason for that, right? How how many of you guys know that it would be foolish for me to expect that the Pelicans would be in the finals? (laughs) And, And your laughter gives away, you know, right? That's not reasonable, right? So expectations, whenever we get expectations inside of us, and this passage is this way, it, it sounds like it expects something, and there's reasons, and good reasons, for that expectation. But, but then there's another dimension to expectations. Expectations bring pressure, too. Expectations make us feel like, okay, well, I guess I got a man up here. I, 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 guess, I guess I'm supposed to be 
doing this versus maybe doing that. I guess I'm, I'm supposed to be doing more than just settling in some categories. And listen, let's face it. I mean, I, I kind of want to give the, the, the Christian life a little bit of a facelift today. I think some of us have just settled. Just settled in. Our life experience is what it is. We're missing out on some things. We're struggling in some areas. We've never experienced what we've heard some other people talk about. And we're kind of cool with that. We've got really low expectations in that category. And I don't think that's okay. I don't think the Bible's okay with that. Paul's not okay with that. When you hear the tone of Paul, this, this passage is dripping with expectations. Right? There's some stuff he's going to highlight here, but he's going to turn this corner in verse 11. And such were some of you. I think as though end of chapter, new story. And he expects that that new story is being lived out a certain way. Now remember where these guys are coming from. And I love that. I'm really enjoying hanging out with the Corinthians because they're, they're just human. They're just like us in a lot of ways. Just ugly. <laughs> Falling apart, not doing it right kind of people. So, you know, we've traveled with them through the first three chapters where Paul just lived in this issue of divisiveness and people claiming to be of this group or that group and alienated from one another. They can't come together and get into agreement because there's something operating inside of them about how special they are and how loyal they are to the wrong things. And then you move along a little bit further, you get to chapter 5 and you've got sexual immorality like even the world doesn't even do the gross stuff that's going on in the church. And and y'all are indifferent to it. And then you get to chapter 6 and there's lawsuits, there's conflicts that are going on that are so unsolvable for people who have been forgiven and who have God operating in them, but they can't seem to get along with each other? Are you serious? And it's so bad that you're embarrassing the name of Christ out in public? So Paul gets to this point. This is the next thought that he says, Hey, do you not know? And and such were some of you. Paul expects different. He's staring at these Corinthians and going, Oh my, what, what is going on with you guys? I expect so much more than this. Do you? Do I expect the Christian life would play out at a greater level with a deeper impact and a more meaningful exchange and transformation of my own life? Listen, if I've stopped believing that and I've settled for some low expression of Christianity, this, this verse goes to war with that right so there's just some clear facts here and some change of mood i want us to make sure we tap into but let's let's jump into some plain facts of the kingdom are you reading your bible you don't want to overlook these facts they inform you about what god is like the clear message of the gospel what it is and what it isn't right so just plain facts and this is representative all throughout scripture it's not just these one unique set of verses verse nine do you not know That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Period. Do you you know that? Because it's a fact. And it's it's a sobering fact, isn't it? 
Maybe we just stop right there. That's sobering that there are human beings that at the end of their story, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They are not destined to heaven and to all the blessings and joy that God intended for them. That's just a fact. Charles Spurgeon. Got a few thoughts from Charles today because of a couple of reasons. Charles just says things well. But secondly, he's, he's a pastor in London, England in the mid to late 1800s. So he, he doesn't hang out with our current culture. And, and for some thoughts, that's very helpful because our, our culture is too influential to us in most ways. But Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, we have here in this passage... A solemn sentence. A sentence shutting the guilty and unrepentant out of the kingdom of God. Charles Spurgeon had no problem in the 1800s saying there is exclusivity in your reality. And we don't like to hear that today. Everybody's supposed to be included in everything in some way. And it's totally up to them, right? Well, huh. Not the way the Bible sounds, right? So this is a staggering statement for us today in our time frame. And follow with me. I think I wrote this out because I just want us to track with this thought. This passage just speaks forthright into our existence. And it must be capable of being read and understood, ponder with me, in the first century where it's going to be stated. Fast forward to the 17th century Victorian England. But very proper, they have views of life that are appropriate and inappropriate, and they're going to read this passage. Fast forward to the 18th century, Puritan colonies of America will need to read this passage as well. Fast forward a little farther, maybe into the 1950s, where Father Knows Best, and everybody dressed a certain way, and were polite and respectful, And they read this verse and it means something. Fast forward into our more current setting where the sexual revolution, gender redefining, individual exalting 21st century has to read this verse. So track with me. Does it suddenly mean something different when we get to today? I mean, for everybody else, it meant the same thing. But, you know, if, if Queen Victoria reads it versus Queen Latifah, reads it or Snoop Dogg or Kim Kardashian did the meaning of this verse change because some different people are reading it who have some different ideas floating around in their head did what God say changed over the years or does this mean exactly the same thing that it meant in the first century as it does today all right, now please don't, don't rush off this point. I, this is a minor thought, but it's a significant thought. Because we think that audience and the condition of the audience and current thinking of the audience changes the word of God. Now, I'm not overlooking the fact that we drive cars, they didn't. You know, I, the, those are just stylistic little edgy things about the Bible. This stuff is just at the core. When you pull out the word unrighteous and use it and provide definition for it, you're talking about the core of the human existence. And that that word unrighteous is going to travel from the Garden of Eden to every hundred years. It never changes. It never changes. So when we land today, we pull out the word unrighteous. God has already spoken in this category. And he has said some very strong stuff. Very unpopular stuff has been said in this category. 
Charles Spurgeon, highlighting this, says, The gospel is as holy as the law. The gospel's full of mercy to sinners, but it shows no mercy to sin. The gospel speaks most tenderly to the ungodly, but it speaks most sternly to ungodliness. There's a great difference made in the New Testament between the sinner and the sin. And while the sinner is in infinite mercy, spared, encouraged to hope, and wooed by almighty love, sin is denounced as a dreadful thing, an abominable thing which God hates and must punish. Ah, dear friends, it is not from Sinai alone that we have need to shrink if we are lovers of sin. For if we are resolved to keep on sinning, Calvary also condemns us. And at last, even from the lips of Jesus Christ himself, willful sinners continuing in their sin shall hear the awful sentence, depart from me, you that work iniquity. These are interesting words. They mean something. This sense of unrighteousness. Jesus pulls out another word of iniquity. Jesus used a word that meant something to him. He looked out at the human existence and he said, there's a thing called iniquity. What is that, Jesus? Well, he's going to get to define what that is. And then he's going to tell you that those who continue in iniquity, what they're going to hear is not welcome to the kingdom. You have inherited it. But depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You understand there's not a culture that's ever existed that gets to self-regulate or write their own script or explain their own way into heaven. You're going to have to stand before God and say, God, I'm unfamiliar with these terms. What do they mean? And how do we get access to your kingdom? Because this is an alarming passage that there is a day in which the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right, so you make this bold statement. You're going to see another passage. This is not the only bold time this kind of statement is made. And then you follow it up with something that's also going to be followed up later just like it. Here's what comes right after you make a bold statement warning people in this category. Do not be deceived. Why do you say that next? Because apparently it's easy to get duped in this category and to not be in agreement with God about what he says is good and bad. Now, that's not new, is it? Right? We do remember the first few pages of the Bible. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve got duped. They got tricked. I mean, the biggest, if you ever want to try and figure out why your life is what it is. I know you might try and figure out what decision have I made? Where did I get off track? What's wrong with my parents? Uh, genetically, what happened? All right, then you got, yeah, okay, that's influential. If you, when we figure out why your life is what it is, read Genesis, the first few chapters. The biggest thing that ever happened to you was the day the devil deceived your great, 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 great grandparents. And that's how he turned the world upside down, by deceiving them. And they were led to believe that some cultural explanation of what was good and bad was to be believed in the place of what God had said was good and bad. 
God said, it is not good for you to eat from this tree. The culture in the form of the devil came along and said, come on, that's not what that means. That's not important. Let me tell you what's advantageous for you if you will eat of this tree. And they got duped. So apparently, getting it straight, keeping it right in terms of what's good and bad for us, what's good for our existence, what's bad for our existence, is, is right with being deceived. We take a chance in this category about what we believe. And I just want to be clear in this category, because this is how Paul emphasizes it. There is this thing called unrighteousness. The facts of their future is they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you be careful you don't get deceived about this. That's a sobering warning. So let me make this a little more uncomfortable for us. In your outline there, I wrote, if I find myself not opposed to the things in this list, then I've already been deceived. When you look at this list, there's nine things listed there. These are, this is not an exhaustive category of all things that are sinful. We'll see a couple other lists here in just a minute. But it's just nine things that are matter-of-factly mentioned in order to clarify what is unrighteousness. Well, here's nine examples. And the label is on every one of these as unrighteous. And some of them we've got no problem with. But in our culture today, we have problems with some of this list. Adultery is still considered wrong by most folks. I don't think too many of us are running around thinking thieves is cool. If you're a thief and you know somebody's a thief, yeah, probably not good about that. Uh, is drunkards really that mega, big a deal? I mean, heck, we live in New Orleans, right? I mean, that can't be like a major, that's got to be a minor league issue. Revilers, swindlers, yeah, you know, yeah, swindlers, somebody who calls and rips off some senior citizen of their money by making them think something that's not true and, and then they're just ripped off and they don't have provision. We, we can get our back up about that, right? All right? So we're not deceived about some of these. But in our culture today, some of these are up for redefinition as to maybe, you know, should we see it as unrighteous? Right, and so the one that's most prominent in this list, and I'm going I'm to single this out, not because I think the Bible singles it out. I'm going to illustrate in just a second, the Bible doesn't single it out. Our culture has singled it out. Our culture has singled it out in the last 20 to 30 years. Up until that time, the culture didn't even single it out. But homosexuality is in this list. And it just happens to be an example of what I'm talking about today. Don't be tricked. Don't be duped. We are all capable of being deceived. And our culture has changed the verbiage, changed how we're to look at this, changed how we're to understand it. And, and I'm not going to unpack this in some massive way. But, you know, Craig Blomberg, you guys have seen me quote from his commentary. It's interesting that this commentator steered in this direction. This is an illustration that if you read this passage, you can't help but bump into the culture today. So here's a commentator. And this is where he goes with this list of sins. He says, listen, under no conceivable circumstances can the Bible be made to defend the often heard allegation that God created homosexuals that way. What genetic component may contribute to homosexual predispositions remains to be determined. But, like 
inherent predispositions to alcoholism, violence, or various diseases, such a component, if demonstrated, would be an offshoot of the fall, not of creation. Equally crucial, genetic predispositions never exempt humans from biblical standards and accountability before God for moral or immoral behavior. Those predisposed to alcoholism may have to impose more severe restrictions on themselves, such as teetotaling, than others might. But that does not mean that drunkenness for them becomes morally acceptable. Those predisposed to homosexual practices may have to monitor themselves more carefully too. But that scarcely turns sin into a divinely ordained lifestyle. See, this verse was spoken and revealed by God long before our culture came along and changed the way we feel about things. It had already said, it was trying to explain, oh, that word unrighteousness. Well, what is unrighteousness? Well, let me just throw out a few examples for you. And one of the examples, one of the examples included here is homosexuality. Now, I want to be careful because I want to go back to making sure the church treats this area the way it's supposed to, while the world is not treating it the way it's supposed to. But, you know, be aware, I think our technology, our science is informing us about some things that the Bible's not surprised by the science of of man discovering things. So, So let's suppose that... Science is discovering that a lot of what makes you personality-wise, preference-wise, has some form of genetic origin. There might be a lot of people who would agree with that today. So I, I don't have a debate with that. If, if somehow you could draw vial of liquids out of my body and look at it and say, hey, I bet you are prone to do this and probably not this. I bet you run after this real easily, but this over here never shows up in your life. I don't have a problem. If the science can figure out that that's really what's happening, uh, the God who created our biology, the God who has superintended the fall and all of its consequences and then wrote the Bible, right? These things are said after the fall. So if the fall has damaged our genetic makeup so that some of us in this room are going to have a harder time with uh, addictive issues, and science really is showing some of this, that maybe you're more prone to addiction than somebody else is. Do you know the Bible doesn't, you don't get a special version of the Bible. It's like all the verses that call you to self-control are gone. Because you understand, you have an addictive personality. You don't have any control over that. So the Bible stops requiring you to restrain your appetites because you have an addictive personality. So the Bible just needs to understand that's kind of the way you are. And God made you that way. Right, how many of us want a, want a Bible like that, that we, you know, we hand that Bible out to the guys on death row who have murdered a number of people because they seem to have a, an anger management problem? Seriously, I mean, these people have taken other people's lives. They had no problem venting that. And, and maybe if you bumped into one of their relatives and said, yeah, I'm not surprised. I've known him since he was this high. 
Dude's been a hothead his whole life. You could never cross him. He was, he was, he was violent from as far back as he could go. Well, maybe he's got some kind of a gene pool dysfunction that makes him violent. So does he get a, a violent adjusted Bible that doesn't have any expectations for him in this category? All, all the other things the Bible calls on him and all the other ways the Bible labels something unrighteous doesn't apply to him uniquely in this category. Do you understand this, this is not how we do life, is it? Except in one category today. This verse clearly has spoken long before cultures shifted in a variety of categories to feel differently about what's in this list and which ones are really bad and which ones are not so bad and how do we explain the fact that some people behave one way versus behaving another. God knew all of this. God knows that this is a reality. I, I, don't, I don't know how many hours of counseling I've done with husbands and wives and, and uh, can I just tell you, not every man in this room has the same appetite for sex. It's a fact. So there's been extremes in that category. There's been no, not so much in this category. Do you know not every man struggles with the temptation to pornography the same way? Do you know that's a fact? Well, what is it that makes that guy struggle more? Well, 40 years ago, <clears throat> trying to discover why people were uniquely who they were, You'd have, you'd have gone back into the way they were raised and what they were exposed to. And you'd ignored that they might genetically be different one another. Just 40 years ago, you would have ignored that. And you would have just searched for how were you brought up? What were you exposed to when you were younger? How did your parents raise you? So it was all about influence. So you apparently learned to do these things. And then somewhere along the way, science says, you know, that's not completely right. And psychology changed and counseling changed. And they went from, hey, uh, asking you questions about how you were raised and how you were treated and at what point were you uh, breastfed and when did you stop. And, and you know, all the, the, this is what they were digging around and trying to figure out what made you screwed up. And so now they say, uh, you've probably got this gene pool, that gene pool. So you were born this way now. So it's, it's, it's functioning in your genetic makeup. And so the explanation there is you're going to uniquely have issues in certain categories. I, listen, when the world fell, it, everything fell. I don't have any doubt that my gene pool fell. And, you know, it doesn't have the right balance of this. And chemically, I'm out of whack. And, and, that, and then, then God speaks to human beings who are in that condition. And he says, don't do that. And nowhere does it sound like, like there's a little asterisk there and at the bottom of the page it says, except if you have an addictive personality or your passion for sex is much higher than somebody else's. Well, well then, oh, well, hey, hey, wives, I got bad news for you. You know, you got a husband who's just hot, you know, burning up. Um, welcome to the porn world. That's where he's going to live, right? This is what I'm talking about. These are low expectations, aren't they? This is what our world has done to us. It has lowered our expectations to explain things and all that sounds like is. And then, but then the Bible turns around and says, that's not what I expect for a Christian man. Listen, I, I know this is bad. This is bad happening in the body of Christ. You get in a room full of men and let them compare notes about their pornography issues, which, by the way, was not happening in men's lives at this level 40 years ago. You had to go through a little more effort. 
to have a pornography problem back then. Now you just pull your device out and boom, problem. There you go. And so it's so common now. Guys, you really want me, to, you know, when you come for marriage counseling, you really want us just to say, well, wives, you, you're just going to have to lower your expectations. I don't think so. I think I just might need to read the Bible and raise my expectations to where they are. Because you know what's on this list? Sexual immorality. Do you know what sexual immorality is? I don't need to go into a definition. Can you imagine what sexual immorality is? Can you slap on that some Greek and Roman perversion and you got sexual immorality at a hyper level? And the Bible turns around and says, oh, by the way, that's unrighteous. And, and those who practice that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is how the Bible speaks. It's just the facts, right? So let's move into this, this word here. We want to explore the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What, what is that? What is this word? Who are the unrighteous? Well, we just got examples. Paul clarified that by throwing nine things out at us. But this is common in scripture. Galatians chapter 5 also provides for us an interesting list with some different stuff on it to explain the same thing. Galatians 5 verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Now it's getting a little more tame, isn't it? Now it's getting into, now you're meddling now. You know, for those of us who managed to stay off a death row, uh, we're still in the list here. How about that? Fits of anger. Oh, man. It's always fun to hear men in particular explain their fits of anger. You know, they almost know it's wrong, but they come from a long line. I don't know, they're Latin or, you know, whatever. They've got some kind of justifiable reason. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Wow, I'd have to get better Facebook. Drunkenness orgies and things like these I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God this is sobering this is alarming because this is our resume that just got read I don't think anybody escaped that list I don't think there's anybody in this room that escaped that list by the way if if idolatry is in the list there's nobody in the room who escaped that list You can try and escape the other ones, and you probably don't. But you definitely don't escape that one. Ephesians 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you. Apparently, making that statement needs to be followed up with, don't be duped. Don't be tricked into believing something in this category that's not true. It's a bold statement. It makes you turn your head. And today it makes you whiplash turn your head. Back then they had some degree of, oh yeah, I can get that. There's some in, some out. But this is shocking for us. Well, don't be deceived with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And notice carefully here, you got these lists that sit under this umbrella called unrighteousness. This is just an umbrella that's got a bunch of stuff underneath it. And and unrighteous, it just means not righteous, not right, 
in the way in which God defines right. That's what unrighteousness is. God the creator puts everything in its place and then that's righteous. When it fulfills the purpose for which he created, that's righteous. When it gets out of bounds from that, that's unrighteous. Right, so when we look at this list, you got a little list in the beginning there, those, those nine examples of unrighteousness. you got, you got sexuality that's out of bounds, sexually immoral, adulterers, and men who practice homosexuality. All three of those are out of bounds. And the Bible's just real simple about that. You have those who are out of bounds in their worship. They are called idolaters. An idolater is someone who looks to something else besides God to act as God in their life. That's a painful definition, isn't it? Because we could be in this room today with, you know, yeah, I don't have any tiki images carved out sitting on a shelf in my house. I bow down to it in the morning. Health, size of your retirement account, your finances, your job, whether you're liked by people. Whether you feel good about your life right now or not. Because whatever you've been looking to looks like it's doing this to you right now. And it's been doing that for a while. And you, you, you can't find any joy. Listen, all this stuff reveals I'm an idolater. Because I'm not looking to God for these things. I'm looking somewhere else. I'm living in the fallout of that. There are those who are out of bounds in their attitudes and their actions. A little list there. There are thieves. The greedy. Right? The thieves are actually stealing stuff. The greedy want to steal your stuff. <laughs> there are drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. So notice something about this list. I call it an equally offensive passage. It just equally offends everybody. And so the idea, and be careful, the Christian universe needs to be careful that it's not being educated by the world about how it sees these lists. The world tells you, oh, there's this one thing, homosexuality. Let's, let's, let's set it over here. Oh, and by the way, we want to know what the church says about that. You know, I find it interesting that you don't want to hear what we have to say about greedy people. Drunks, want to talk about them? Right, there's a lot of stuff on this list here, isn't there? I'm amazed that, you know, long before you thought you might have same-sex attraction, you were already a drunk. I mean, you want to talk about that? Well, no, because the culture didn't teach you to make an issue about that. But now that's the litmus test, right? That's the litmus test for the church. What do you believe about this issue? I believe much worse things about lesser issues. You want to start there? If you want to be offended by me, let's, let's back up into some of this other stuff on this list. You know, you're going to get asked questions. Because this, you know, this is how this is getting phrased in our culture today. So, so you go to one of those churches, you know. That's the thing about you Christians. So, so you believe homosexuals are going to hell? Are you, you ever get questions like this? It's in the news. I mean, that's how people ask these questions. Um, well, you know, a couple of things in answering that question. One, it really doesn't matter what I believe. I'm just a local nobody. I'm, if you want to know where I'm from, I'm from the suburbs of New Orleans. How much could I really know? So does it really matter what I believe? What really matters is what, is, what does God say? 
And what God says in this passage is the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so whether or not you are the very small minority of uh, struggling with same-sex attraction, you got other stuff to worry about on this list. That's unrighteous. That's out of bounds. Human beings who have decided to live life out of bounds from their creator have an unrighteousness problem. And under that umbrella, there is this alarming statement. You won't be inheriting the kingdom of God in the end. Jesus Christ, who described life through the term iniquity, is going to say, away from me, I I never knew you. And that's just a sobering reality. So the issue is not about whether homosexuals go to hell. It's the reality of unrighteous people go to hell. How are you going to fix that? That's a much bigger issue. So where do, we, where do we get any righteousness from here? Let me just cover this last. Here's the facts of righteousness. Only the righteous inherit the kingdom. All right, if I was a man on the street today, went out there and asked people, so hey, so how do you get righteous? How do you, how do, you do that? Just ask the average, how do you get righteous? I can almost guarantee you most people will respond by telling you something that they either have done or will need to do in order to achieve something. Right. It's going to be about their contribution. It's going to be about putting off some bad stuff, cleaning up their act in some way, and doing something significant, trying harder. That's how we're going to get righteousness. But that's not how the Bible describes getting righteousness. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Notice that word, believe. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed. All right, so if you're, if you're looking to figure out, where do I find this righteousness? I don't want to get to the end of life and not have it because apparently you don't get in. So where do I find this righteousness? Well, you need to start looking in the gospel because in it, the righteousness of God is going to be revealed. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been made known. It's made its appearance apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Right? And apart from the, what does that mean? Apart from the law. Righteousness is apart from the law. Well, when somebody answers the question of how you get righteousness by what they do, they're answering and joined to the law. I'm going to keep some rules. And if I keep them at a decent level and I get a passing grade, then I will, I will receive righteousness. All right, well, that's righteousness that comes by the law. And so here it says, but wait, there was a righteousness that was manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets spoke about it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Ah. For all who believe. So this word belief and faith and Jesus Christ become indisposable pieces of ever achieving and experiencing righteousness. For there's no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. 
All right, so God put righteousness on display and explained how you can have it. It's all about belief and about faith and about Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you can get righteousness anywhere else, Jesus Christ never needed to come and do what he did. Because you could go out and get you some righteousness, run to the door of the kingdom of God and say, Ooh, let me in. Look what I have. But apparently that's impossible. So Jesus Christ had to do what he did. Philippians chapter 3. That I may gain Christ. So if there's anything you're going to need when you get to that door, it's going to be Christ. And be found in him. Listen. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Not getting righteousness by my performance, by my due diligence, by my cleaning up my act. Not getting it that way. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So you've got these must, these necessary elements of the facts of righteousness. Here's the alarming statement. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's a problem for all of us. No matter what your favorite or unfavorite sin category is, that's a problem for all of us. How are we going to solve that? Well, there's a way to get righteous. It involves Jesus Christ. It involves faith and belief. All right, so quick facts to clarify this. Fact number one. Righteousness is a unique quality that can only be found in Christ. If you went out and bought a metal detector or a righteousness detector and just started going around everywhere, everywhere you could, everywhere in life, traveled to other countries, found remote islands, and just looked everywhere because you know when you stand before the gates of heaven to inherit the eternity with God, you're going to need to present this thing to him. You're going to need to reach into your pouch, pull out this thing. Look, look what I found. With my metal detector. You understand? You're never going to find righteousness that way. There's nothing you can do apart from Christ to ever lay your hands on righteousness. Then you're going to need it to present it at the end. Fact. The absence of righteousness makes us incompatible with the nature of God. He is righteous. This is where Christianity solves and, and it's the only way to solve this problem. I'm staggered sometimes. If you understand this, if you understand, I'm making up a little bit of a goofy illustration here. If you understand that when you travel through life's journey and you get to this place to inherit the kingdom of God, if, if you can't present righteousness, you're done. You're outside of the kingdom forever. So you rewind and you back up and you go back in time and you say, okay, well, we got to figure out a way to get some of that righteousness then, Right? And rather than just consulting the Bible and having the Bible tell you, you can't find it anywhere. It's worse than scarce. It doesn't exist anywhere. You can never create it. There's no manufacturing plant that can make it. You cannot come up with this, but you can receive it from the only one who has it. And if you'll go to him in faith, he'll give it to you. And when you stand before the pearly gates, if you will, you'll present that righteousness to God. Now, what is it that makes us think, well, that sounds cool, but I think I'll make up another way. 
Do you think I'll make up another religion or belief or approach? Or, yeah, I'm kind of cool with Jesus being in the, in the equation somehow, but ultimately it's still all about this. What makes us think we can do that? The God of the universe has already explained everything. This is not up for grabs. You just can't decide, well, I'm going to do it my way. Well, the Bible already clearly explained you will never find righteousness apart from Christ. It's the only place you can get it in the universe. So that's a pretty big, that's a clarifier. This verse is just loaded with clarification. Right, last thought, fact. You don't gradually become righteous. You suddenly become righteous. If your idea of righteousness is, hey, you know, I don't know how I'm going to do in the end, but, you know, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm getting, I'm, I'm not the same jerk I used to be. So I'm, you know, cleaning up a few things here, adding a few things there, trying to find a noble cause, trying to sacrifice here and there. So I don't know, maybe when I get to the end, maybe a little farther down the road, I've got this idea that when my performance gets to a certain level, then maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll have crossed the bare minimum. Maybe I'll get a passing grade of righteousness. I'm not anticipating getting an A, but, you know, maybe a D minus and, and that'll do it for me. As though there's a difference between a D minus righteousness and an A plus. Where do we get these ideas? Listen, you either got righteousness or you don't. It doesn't come in shades or grades. And you don't get pieces of it. You don't accumulate it along the way and just, you know, I got a little bit here. I I think I need about eight pounds and I've got about 14 ounces right now. So I'm going to have to just keep on doing that. That's not in the Bible. See, the way Paul speaks is such were some of you. He can speak as though that's not your situation anymore. Because at a moment, in an instant, suddenly, you are righteous. That's how the Bible teaches that we get righteousness. It's not accumulated. It's suddenly in our lives. All right, so let me move forward in this last thought here in verse 11. This is a radical thought, right? So he just has cataloged these nine issues, made a huge statement that the unrighteous won't inherit, and then he turns to this audience, to those in the kingdom of God who are part of the church in Corinth, and he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So at at an instant, these things touched our existence and so radically changed us that we now have a new definition in our existence. We are not the same people we used to be. Now this, this is why the tone of the Apostle Paul is so rich with expectations and puzzlement because he understands that when you become a Christian something so radical happens to you that you ought to be a different person Uh, so I don't get why are you guys living in these categories that we've been trafficking through so far I have higher expectations for you and we should as well listen the Bible is re- defining you, right? We, we like to use the term identity in this category. This is an identity issue. We get a new identity. Whatever that means to you, I don't know, know what it means to some people, but I, I get a new self-definition. 
at the very core of my being, a new defining thing is present in me that was not present before. And it has a radical impact on me. So much so that no matter how much you were these things in the past, you are not any longer. That's radical. Now, I want you to do this because this is so countercultural. This verse allows you to pick up all nine of these and say, that's not me anymore. That's radical, isn't it? Especially given the one that's in the list. You may have been born that way. But when you get saved, you are not that way anymore. You may have had a struggle with sexual immorality. Maybe you've committed adultery. Maybe you've had same-sex attraction. Maybe you've been a, a thief at some point in your life. Maybe you're a swindler. You've taken advantage of people. That's who you used to be. But not anymore. That's a radical statement, isn't it? Listen, this is some of the greatest news in the good news. Because a lot of us know man, how hard it is and how terrible it is to, to be the people that we are. The things that we struggle with. And the Bible comes along and says, oh, but something deep in you has happened that is so radical. You are not the same. You start living your life in light of this new chapter. Change the expectations of your life. Something's happened to you. You're not just the same old person who got around some ideas. I think I'll try out something new. No, no, something has happened to you. You were washed. You were set apart by God. You don't live at the same address in the economy of God anymore. You were justified. You were made right with God. Righteousness was given to you. It's in you. Pouring through your veins. Touching who you are, right? This is a great passage, and I wish I had more time to unpack it. 2 Corinthians 5. This is, this is how we should think about ourselves. Verse 16. This is Paul going to write this to the Corinthians later on. Second letter. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. E- even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come this is this is expectations well if I'm new then I expect my life will be shaped by this newness it's going to transform me it's going to find its way out into my life the expectations I have for me change when I become a new creation Right, it's the difference between the Warriors and the Pelicans playing in the playoffs. <laughs> right? If you're the Pelicans, you've got no reason to expect that. If you're the Warriors, you're shocked if you get knocked out in the first round. That will be shocking. I will celebrate profoundly should that happen because I can't stand the Warriors. But that's a whole other issue. <laughs> Verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him... To be sin 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Where are you going to get this righteousness? Well, it's going to necessitate Jesus Christ taking your sin on himself so that you and I could have his righteousness in its place. There's nowhere else to get it. But once you get it, do you expect your life might be different? Yeah. Eric, you can come back up. This last thought from Charles Spurgeon. He says, what is meant by the Christian being a new creature? Three thoughts seem to me to spring up from the words. And the first is, the believer must then have been the subject of a radical change. He is said to be a new creature, which is all thing of all things a most sweeping change. There are many changes which a man can, may undergo. But they may be far from being radical enough to be worth calling a new creation. Do you see then how very searching the word is here? A new creature, absolutely a new creation. Regeneration, which is what happens on the inside of us, a new genesis, a new life has come to us, is a change of the entire nature from top to bottom in all senses and respects. Such is the new birth. Such is to be in Christ and to be renewed by the Holy Ghost. Grace does not reform us. It recreates us. It does not pare away here and there an evil excrescence, but it implants a holy and divine principle which goes to instant war with all indwelling sin and continues to fight until corruption is subdued and holiness is enthroned. Does that change your expectations? See, this is where that little list of nine there... If you're here today and on that, in that little list of nine, you have an allegiance to any of that. If something inside of you bears witnesses, that's the way it should be. And that's who you should be. Do you understand? That, if that describes you, it negates what we just read from Charles Spurgeon. Because according to Charles Spurgeon and according to the scriptures, new birth means a new life has come into me and that new life is screaming out righteousness. It's screaming and pushing righteousness out of it. And that's going to touch this list. And it is exactly doing it. It is going to war with these things. So these things that used to characterize us, these things that we used to be okay with, the culture has said, hey, that's, you were born that way. If something on the inside of you isn't like white blood cells running to that thing going, that thing needs to die, right? That thing right there, that needs to stop living among us. That needs to go. And that, that yells at you continuously, that sense of conviction and awareness. If you got nothing like that going on on the inside of you, you should be seriously concerned. Righteousness is noisy on the inside. It makes its presence known. And listen, I'm not in any way saying that any of these lists of sins and unrighteousness aren't battles. Some of them are incredible wars that we get up and fight every day. But we do not partner with them. And we are not on the same side with them. And we do not have an allegiance to them. We don't justify the idea that that... That sin amongst all the sins that are listed here, that form of unrighteousness is okay to live in me. We should never do that. 
And the voice of righteousness born by the Spirit of God is not saying that. The God who spoke years ago and said sexual immorality and greed and idolatry and homosexuality, I'm speaking to you, they're all under the umbrella of unrighteousness. And if the culture decides later on, say, well, you know, four out of five, yeah, but not this one. That does, God's not obligated to change his view. He still has exactly the same view. So when the life of God in us and righteousness speaks, it's going to speak accurately about those things. It's going to say the same thing God has said about them. Now listen, I get in, in the room here, there, you know, we're all fighting battles in certain categories. Right? You remember that one of those things had, a, had jealousy on the list? Jealousy. I know this. There'll be people in this room that every day is an unbearable battle in jealousy. Comparing their life with somebody else who's their rival, their same age group, what they have, what they don't have. And it's a miserable experience every day to get up and to just be angry about what they don't have. And what is that person? And, and just this thing is going off on the inside of them. It, it, it's unrighteous. So you listen, before you got going, yeah, well, at least I'm not an adulterer. At least I haven't destroyed my family with an addiction problem or a, I'm not a homosexual. Uh, no, you're, you're other things. That are all equally unrighteous. Listen, there's nobody gets to heaven and goes, uh, listen, I don't have any of that righteousness that Jesus was handing out, but let me tell you what I don't have. I never did this and I never did that. And oh, okay, special section in heaven for you. Come on in. You know, it's like the list is long and unrighteousness is unrighteous. And if you don't go get some righteousness and you stand in that day, it doesn't matter how short your unrighteousness list is, it's unrighteous. It doesn't matter whether you like that unrighteousness list better than you like somebody else's unrighteousness list. It doesn't matter. The only thing that's going to matter is whether you got righteousness from Christ through faith. And then once you do, oh, what a difference that's going to make in your life. Every day of your life as this war breaks out on the inside of you. A war that you will engage and you will fight. And you will be on God's side in it. Let's stand up together. Ah, Lord, search us. Be among us. Spirit of God, bring words to life bring the good news to bear on our lives. Lord, thank you for this moment, for every person who walked in here this morning with low expectations with a life that has allowed unrighteousness to be a roommate, to hang out, to travel for a really long time on this journey, to raise all of its distractions, to make all of its noise, and to start believing that that's just never going to change. 
to make space for that, to understand. Lord, this morning, would you let your word be your word to us? Let it bring clarity. Lord, what you have done is you have made us new creatures. You have made us something that we were not. You have embedded us with life and power and righteousness that is living and transformative. You have done something in these categories that are amazing of washing, sanctifying, and justifying us. We are just simply not the same creatures we were before we knew you. So Lord, would you lift our gaze and would you let us set our ambitions higher? Lord, would we not be at peace, Lord? This morning, God, I pray for grace in our lives to break the truce with unrighteousness that's been in some of our lives. I believe God this morning, just trying to listen for the Holy Spirit to see how to activate something in your heart right now. I think God this morning wants you to pick a fight with some things in your life. He wants you to break the truce, the peace that's been between unrighteousness and yourself. There's a war. Righteousness is at war with unrighteousness. The Spirit of God is at war with the flesh. If you long for peace, long for heaven, but you will not have peace this side of it. I just had a sense for praying for you this morning. I'm sure there's several places that we make peace with unrighteousness, but a couple of impressions for those who've made peace with laziness. It explains and offers an explanation for so many things. You've made peace with it. You don't read and pursue God because that's just not you. You're not very aggressive when it comes to responsibilities because it's just not you. That's how you've always been. Your life is messy, untidy, unorganized because that's just you. That's how you've always been. And there's something in you that's at peace with that. Can I just warn you of the people who come sometimes with other problems? Other problems. They don't come because they have a laziness problem. They're coming for some other problem that laziness helped to create. You are not called to be at peace with that. No matter how hard it may feel to you, righteousness wants to go to war with self-consumed laziness. There's some here whose issues of anger have traveled with you for too long. Enough already. Put the thing out of the car. Well, you don't understand how hard that is. My grandfather, my father was a... um, I understand this. You are a new creature. 
and the old things have passed away behold something new has come something terribly powerful has come that will have an impact and an effect you will not be the same person you once were I'm just going to, I know I'm taking a moment here. I'm going to invite some folks to pray. This is a significant thing. These are the kinds of things that shape who you are and who you'll never be. You'll never be something because something else is right in the script for you. So it, it's, it's worth you picking a fight this morning. And I think that's what God wants you to do this morning is pick the fight this morning. Don't just agree. Don't just say, yeah, yeah, I get it. Pick the fight this morning. Now we'll say this, you won't win the war this morning. It's a process to win the war. It's a battle that's going to have many categories and days ahead in it. But you have to pick the fight at some point. You have to look at your life and say, you are no longer welcome to be here. Do you you have faith to believe God can change the deepest, most difficult things about you? True story. Two true stories. I got saved on a Friday night in February of 1979. Every Friday night for me was an opportunity to go find pot and alcohol that would just light the weekend up. And that's that's what we did on the weekends. But this Friday night, I had been reading the Bible for a while. And I went to a church service. And God came alive in me. But the next Friday was coming. And as a almost 15-year-old person, I did what you did as a teenager. I went to the party where there was pot, ice chest full of Miller ponies. Y'all remember those? But something had happened in me. No one explained any of this to me. I had been born again for a week and I didn't understand most of this. My friend who would bring me home from these parties because I wasn't old enough to drive and he would drive me home and normally I'm strategizing, okay? If my parents are up, how do I get past them without staggering and looking like a drunken, loaded idiot? So we're a block away from the house and my thinking goes, I'm not drunk. I'm not loaded. And these images flashed in my head of open ice chests with beer sitting in them and guys smoking pot. And it was like I stood in the presence of that and God had removed any interest. There was nothing in me that wanted that. And I was driving home and I was a block from my house and that just came to life for me. And I, I became aware I didn't want that. That's an instantaneous thing. God still does that. When I got to be in my early 20s, it was a different story in a different category. And God peeled back enough of the layers of my heart to show me, you know, Keith, can I just show you why you do most of what you do? And God began to show me my motives, my ambitions, how self-serving they were, how much I was fighting for my own significance, how much pride was behind even the good things I was doing, the desires to do things that mattered to other people were ultimately a a means of getting that to come back to me. And so God peeled this back. I, I wish that would have been a Friday night to Friday night adventure. 
But that was more like a uh, age 20 to age 28 adventure. It took a long time for God just to keep showing me that and changing that. But I will say this, I grew to hate it quickly. That form of unrighteousness, I couldn't stand. It was hard to overcome. And I'm sure I'm still battling with it in all kinds of ways today. But God did a number on me. I can honestly say the way that control my life sits in the rearview mirror. I remember those days. I remember what was in my heart in various moments. But God did something. So I I don't know what your issue is, but do you believe if you pick a fight with that thing, God will do something? God will get into that area of your life. It may take a few months. It may take a few years. But God will go to war in that category of your life. So here's how I want to close. I want to pray for us. I want to invite you to come for prayer. If if you're here today and you're saying, man, I I need to pick a fight with something and I don't know if I've got faith for it. Listen, maybe God will meet you in an instant. Maybe you're here today and you've got some kind of addictive issue. You've got something you're struggling with that's ruling the day. Maybe God will meet you and next Friday will be a different Friday for you. I don't know. Maybe it's a different kind of battle. But can you come this morning? Come pick a fight with that. So I'm going to close this in prayer. And as I do that, if you want to come pick a fight this morning, I want you to come, come get up here with God and serve notice and look that thing in the face and say, you're no longer welcome here. I'm not partnered with you. You are unrighteous and I want no part of you. So Father, thank you for clarifying things that are very easily confused in our world. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that is in our midst even right now. Thank you for making us new creations with a hope and an expectation that what you do in our lives makes a difference. Our future can and will be different because you are at work among us and in us. So Lord, empower some, Lord, to hear. Let there be a bold act of wars being declared where there was peace with unrighteousness. Lord, disturb that peace today. Calling into it today. Lord, declare war again today in the hearts of your people so that righteousness will reign in our lives by your grace and your strength in Jesus' name. That's you. Come up and pray. And as the rest of you guys are being dismissed this morning, just take a moment. If you want to come pray with a relative or a friend or somebody that's on your list, in your covenant group that you care about, come pray for them. Let's see God do some great stuff among us.